Welcome back to Emerge, everyone. So this week on the show, I'm joined by Miles Bouquet, uh, who is a fellow trainee at the Monastic Academy. And I thought I'd release this episode this week out of the number of episodes I kind of have already pre-recorded because, well, I have some big news to share. Starting in February, I'll be moving from Boulder, Colorado, back to the Monastic Academy in Lowell, Vermont. For those who are keeping track, that was the monastery I previously spent two years training in from 2014 to 2016. And I'll be headed back there for at least the next six months. Uh, We've worked it out so that I'll be able to have enough space to continue to create this podcast while I'm living there. And in fact, the Monastic Academy will be the primary sponsor for this podcast while I'm living there. And part of the idea is that I'll be dedicating a lot of my time into exploring how to align the teachings and conceptual frameworks of the monastery with what I've discovered as a result of the conversations and inquiry I've been going on through this podcast. So the monastery's full name is uh, Maple, or the Monastic Academy for the Preservation of Life on Earth. And Soryu, the founder of the organization, always envisioned the monastery playing a primary role in responding to the existential risks of our world system. And so what does an existential risk monastery look like? What does a metamodern monastery look like? And what training has the best shot of transforming human beings into agents capable of meeting and transforming the great challenges of our time? And so I have my own sense of how to go about answering that question, and I fully intend to continue to deepen that inquiry through this podcast. You know, I, I say that to to just share with you, um, those of you I know, those of you I don't know, you know, this is a big transition in my life. I'm sure that it will affect, you know, the, the episodes that I decide to record, you know, the scope of the inquiry of the podcast, as well as the questions that I'll be asking people. Uh, it's also an opportunity, if, if you're so inclined, to come and visit you know, um, it's, uh, there are many different ways that you can come and take part in the culture that's being created there. And I'm sure that uh, we'll be sharing more about that in the coming months. And if you'd like to hear more about why I've decided to head back to the Monastic Academy um, and its particular relationship to the inquiry of this podcast, I'll be releasing an article on that topic in the coming weeks. And um, before we jump into this particular episode, uh, if for whatever reason you want to hear more about the day-to-day life of living in the Monastic Academy, I've left a link to a blog post by somebody who's uh, visiting the Monastic Academy, kind of reflecting on like what is it like to be there, as well as a link back to the episode I recorded with Peter Park, where we go into some detail about the specifics of the Monastic Academy. But this episode with Miles is more about the general idea of monasteries of the future, of which the Monastic Academy is an example of. Okay, so uh, without further ado, all that housekeeping taken care of, 
please enjoy this episode of Emerge with Miles Bouquet. Welcome back to another episode of Emerge. This time on the show, I'm joined by Miles Bouquet. Miles and I met, I think, for the first time when I went back to the Monastic Academy to sit a week-long silent retreat. We actually uh, sat together uh, for that week and you know, had a, a little bit of a chance to meet each other afterwards. But um, subsequently, uh, he finished writing a really beautiful paper called Monasteries of the Future. Uh, I, I, I read it and uh, loved the paper and thought it would be a, a great excuse to get Miles to come on the show and, and talk about both his paper as well as, you know, just whatever else is kind of in this arena. I think that Miles and I, obviously, given that we both took the very extreme and kind of weird decision to go and train in a monastic style uh, uh, space for, uh, you know, oh, you know, my case for two years, in his case, uh, a year in that case, and I think, you know, over a year in silent retreat, nine months in Asia, traveling around to various centers, you know, uh, both of us are very interested in the intersection of these uh, ancient contemplative practices and what role they have in informing our emerging future, in particular, the sort of uh, critical questions of our age. Uh, both of us are big fans, for instance, of the listening society and metamodernism and the work of Hansi Freinacht. And so there's lots of symmetries that we're going to explore in this episode. And uh, before we get started, I'd just like to say welcome, Miles. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Great. And and so I thought, you know, there's a hundred different ways we could break open this conversation. But the way that I thought might be interesting is that, so you wrote this paper about monasteries of the future. And I think that most people have some kind of like ambiguous sense of like what a monastery is. But I'd be curious to hear your sense of, you know, what is a monastery? What have the role of monasteries been, the role and function of monasteries been throughout history? Yeah. So, in my understanding, uh, a monastery is a place where intensive, intensive meditation practice happens. Uh, historically, they've been religious, and uh, in this this modern definition that I created, I include religious institutions, but I also include now secular training because why can't intensive meditation? practice happen in a secular environment. Nice. Yeah. And, and they've also, um, you know, fulfilled various other roles in culture. Like I remember Soryu, uh, the, the person who created the monastic academy where we both trained at, talking about how monasteries used to perform many functions that we now would probably associate with uh, like the role of government, like uh, you know, um, whether it's education in the form of um, training people in literacy or uh, hosting records and helping people get married and things like that. So uh, is that is that part of your definition too, or how does that function into your way of thinking? Yeah, certainly uh, historically monasteries have had a, a huge uh, a huge range of roles, uh, educational roles, ceremonial roles, um, played played major uh, economic roles in the societies 
that that have had major monastic networks. I think what I was trying to 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 create in this this vision of monasteries of the future is what might monasteries look like moving forward. How how might they mm-hmm. play well with with modern nation states? How might they play well with modern science? How might they play well with with modern people? Cool. Yeah, and so that's. I, I suppose that's kind of the, the the crux of your paper and my own fascination with a place like the Monastic Academy. You know, I personally went to the Monastic Academy not because I, I necessarily wanted to live in a monastery, but because I was fascinated with this idea at the time they called it a modern monastery, right? Like what is this union between deep contemplative practice and then our responsibility to the world? You know, how, how do we uh, leverage contemplative practice to transform the world in the context of the monastic academy. So are you called it um, the uh, awakening on the one hand and responsibility on the other, and that there was some kind of relationship between these two. And so uh, what's your sense of what the role of these monasteries like the monastic academy and and other examples of these future monasteries for the future of uh, the world? Well, I think that uh, just as ancient monasteries had a huge range of functions within society. Uh, Modern monasteries might come to have a range of functions as well, but perhaps the most um, basic and uh, vital function of monasteries of the future is training people to have deep levels of contemplative practice. So you look at basic contemplative skills, skills like the ability to pay attention, skills like how compassionate someone is, skills like how able people are to uh, drop cognitive biases and see the world in a a fresh way, Uh, skills like gratitude, that in the modern world, there aren't uh, really, there aren't institutions that are built to, to train these skills at a high level. Our society doesn't even often think of these things as skills in the first place. Mm-hmm. So I see monasteries of the future as, uh, as holding, holding standards for what it means to, to, to have deep contemplative training. Yeah, specifically in the paper, you talk about these monasteries of the future being spaces in which you train what you call contemplative adepts or uh, elite monks. I'm curious, like what, what would you say is the, is the role of these contemplative adepts or elite monks in the modern world? Yeah, I think um, maybe it would uh, make more sense if I gave a couple examples of the people who have this sort of level of training I'm talking about. Uh, Think of uh, an individual like, um, the Dalai Lama, or an individual like Thich Nhat Hanh, or for those of you familiar with uh, the Thai forest tradition, an individual like Ajahn Mun. These are all people who devoted their lives to contemplative training. And then actually by the time they were relatively young, um, late 20s, 30s, already had decades of training and began to teach and share 
and through that work uh, have influenced millions of people. So I think there's something that's um, very wonderful when we pay respect to such people. And there's something that's very unfortunate when we look at them as though they're somehow fundamentally different than you or I. And uh, if we understand such wonderful individuals as products of wonderful training, then I think a very uh, vast sort of possibility starts to open up for, for our culture. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> right. And so uh, it seems like what you're pointing to is that these centers, these monasteries of the future, as, as you know, monasteries throughout history, would be and are centers of training to create the kind of people, uh, at least in this case, who could then uh, lead more people into these sorts of practices. Uh, I guess this, for me, it, it kind of begets the question um, in my mind, like what it, what's the larger responsibility of contemplative adepts? Like why is this, why are we talking about this now? Like why is this so significant in our, in our world situation? Yeah, I think that, if if you look at the the world today, you will find uh, a number of problems that um, don't seem to have technological solutions. Uh, for example, uh, a problem like um, like climate change, I think, is is an excellent example. How are we gonna create a culture? that doesn't destroy the planet. It's, it's really a very, a very pressing question. And, um, and I think that the, a lot of the, the roots of, of where the, the damage comes from has to do with the state of the human heart and mind. How are people with themselves? How are people with each other? And uh, when you have a, a situation of essentially uh, billions of people who uh, have no capacity to be satiated, no matter how much they have, that's uh, an untenable situation on a finite planet. So you got to get in there with the, uh, the human software that's running and, and ask mm-hmm. the question of, of how can... How can people be programmed to be happier with less? How can mm. people be programmed to, to care uh, about more people, to care in a broader way, to have a bigger circle of concern? Um, how can people, people be, be programmed to, to find renewable sources of happiness and um, you know, non-zero-sum games of, of, of well-being. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so there's what I hear you, um, I hear in your answer is both, you know, there's this individual training and transformation of the mind, but it also seems like there's a way in which these monasteries of the future, especially in, in, in our hyper-connected world are also, um, uh, places where we can experiment with building new forms of culture. Right, like if 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 our dominant world, the mainstream world, is is has a sort of almost like underlying philosophical imperative to consume um, as a path to happiness, like and and then thus we have the culture that we see around us is kind of 
formed on the back of that hypothesis. Uh, just so you know, we can imagine these monasteries giving birth to cultures formed on a different sort of set of hypotheses about the nature of happiness and, and the role of the human in relationship to the world. Yeah, that's exactly right. And importantly, too, um, these cultures, alternative cultures you're talking about, need to actually work better than the dominant culture. So the dominant culture definitely uh, provides a lot. Um, and and if you're going to take away certain sources of happiness, like let's say... Um, you know, being able to to drive wherever you want, being able to eat whatever you want, the kinds of uh, joys of of consumption that are are very seductive for people and uh, become even more seductive when they're promoted so so heavily through through advertising. You need something that's going to fill that gap, something that's actually going to make people happy, and uh, I think that that's where we're deep contemplative training offers uh, an incredible possibility to the world. One of the things that first got me so excited about this, I uh, was studying with a teacher named Alan Wallace, and he um, talks about many things, uh, but among them is samadhi or the ability to pay attention. And as he was breaking down classical texts about, about samadhi, about this ability to pay attention in a very refined way, Pretty much universally, the report is that a, a deep, sustained attention generates bliss, generates a type of bliss that's like uh, better than than all the all the joys of you know eating a big bucket of fried chicken or whatever whatever else it is that uh, feels really good and then leaves you feeling pretty sour on the other side. So this possibility that there's uh, deep states of of well being that are possible through training um, was very compelling to me, and uh, really drove both my own desire to to understand that more experientially, and also to unlock that as something that more people know is possible, mm. and that more people mm. taste as possible. Nice. Yeah. And, and presumably if you can eat, uh, a, some, a bucket of fried chicken, not too much, but with, with, with applied concentration as well, then you're in the best of both worlds too, right? <laughs> presumably you would enjoy that chicken more if you weren't also thinking about where it came from. Yeah. If you weren't thinking about where it came from, right? Exactly. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, it's interesting. There's a symmetry there with my own, um, journey, you know, I, I first started getting really into meditation uh, or, or I made a choice to go live at a, at the time at a Goenka center because I was, you know, thinking about the future and how, how all of, you know, I, I was reading Ray Kurzweil and look, thinking about exponential change and all that stuff. And, uh, thinking that, you know, the only thing that I can be certain about the future is that the circumstances will change. And probably circumstances will change much more rapidly than I'm at all prepared for. Uh, and so the only thing that it makes complete sense to do is to find a way to be happy independently of circumstances. And there's something, I think, like I 
don't know what I would have done at the time if I didn't imagine there to be a way to realize that kind of possibility. Um, you know, whether or not I've actually, I haven't realized, I still feel like I'm very circumstantially happy, but still that idea of that path pulled me in a certain direction, you know, committed me to a, a so far a, a life of relatively high degree of training and, and, and so on. And so, um, yes, yeah, it's, it's there, there's both the, there's both the reality of the training that I think, um, you is worth saying and, and explicating. And then there's also just the kind of like the story or the path or the fantasy of the training that I, I just, I really want to be present, especially for young people as like an option, right? Like as just a, a possible way to move forward in your life as an alternative to kind of participating in some of the more uh, uh, questionable uh, ways that our system typically makes you con- behave. I, I couldn't agree more. I think that um, that that's part of why it's so important to have contemplative adapts and, and part of the role that they they would have played uh, in traditional cultures as well, where holding people who actually embody a happiness beyond conditions, you mm. know, because because a happiness beyond conditions, those that's just a bunch of words. But somebody who embodies it, that that's deeply meaningful and uh, and inspiring. Yeah. And it's inspiring for people of all levels of 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 training too. You know, like in um, in the Thai culture, for example, like where there were very strong monasteries, most people still were never monks, and nevertheless. Uh, most people derive some benefit from the monasteries and and some mm-hmm. a lot of people you know really significant inspiration in in lay lives or lives that that weren't as devoted to practice yeah yeah i think that's you know um as i mentioned i don't i don't have uh unconditional happiness i don't experience that but i do experience that my happiness is relatively less conditional than it used to be. And I think there is this kind of um, possibility of just of just saying like, hey, like, look, uh, there is this idea of unconditional happiness. And you you can move progressively along a spectrum of less and less conditional happiness. And even if it's one step, if it's a dozen steps, it's 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 worthwhile to do. And I think, you know, from my perspective, especially in the context of the modern world where like uh, stuff is getting weirder, like that seems just like a worthwhile way of relating to life, whether or not you're doing deep contemplative practice or to whatever degree you're deciding to engage with the actual practices. Yeah, certainly. In the paper, in your words, or in, the kind of lack of rigorous training standards have, are creating, a, a, as you call it, a crisis in the contemplative field, which um, I don't think I would have if I'd read that line before living at the monastic academy, I would have been like, "What do you? I don't. What do you mean? Like, you're just following your breath, whatever." But uh, you know, I, I I know I think I get a sense of where you're coming from. Um, but I'll just I, I want to ask this question for the benefit of the audience and for our conversation. So, how is spending twenty minutes a day practicing, you know, following your breath, really at all significantly different than dedicating yourself to like full time training in a monastic setting? Well, I think I want to uh, first validate 
how important spending 20 minutes a day following your breath is and how deeply impactive that that is for for so many people's uh, lives and for our culture at large and then with with that firmly in in mind um approached this issue of uh, a crisis of standards in the contemplative world where okay let's say um maybe an example would be fitting right like uh let's say i decided to to go jogging for for uh 20 minutes a day that would be great and uh i'd get fitter and um you know would have a lot of benefits for my life and if then i wrote a book about being a world class runner because i you know run for 20 minutes a day that would be like a real shame for running and if if there was no sense that there was a difference between someone who won marathons and somebody who went for you know, a run every now and then, then what you destroy in the contemplative realm, at least, is even the possibility of these deeper levels of training and these deeper attainments that, that are possible for people. Yeah, definitely. And and so I think there is a kind of, uh, I've noticed, I think, as somebody who has participated in what, what I often refer to as the kind of spiritual industrial complex, as a kind of like flattening of attainment. And I, I, I suspect that this is something to do with like capitalism and marketing and all of those kinds of dynamics. But it does seem like it's much harder to preserve the deeper truths that are, and, and kind of uh, the deeper aspects of these trainings um, in the context of our economic system in our modern world, and how how do how do monasteries of the future help help us to preserve those 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 the, the deeper part of the the spectrum? Well, I think they do it in a lot of ways. Um, well, one interesting thing is actually happening now. So we live obviously in a very materialistic culture in many senses of, of that word. And so um, people want proof of things from a scientific perspective, which is valid enough. And so you might ask, well, what are the benefits of meditation? And uh, up until the 1990s, there were literally only a few hundred uh, studies that had ever been done, peer-reviewed scientific studies. There's now over 6,000. So in this emerging science of meditation, which is really still only just emerging, uh, you're starting to see that even just from the perspective of looking at people's brains, which is a very uh, narrow but uh, important perspective, things happen as people do more practice. And... um, you know, when you put Matthew Ricard, for example, you scan his brain. He's a he's a, a French monk who spent a tremendous amount of time doing practice, 
And then when you take him to one of the best uh, neuroscience labs in the world, in this case, a University of Wisconsin, and take a look at his brain and take a look at the brains of some other contemplative adepts, they're finding that these people are able to, to generate uh, brain states that are extraordinary. And, um, and then that can, you know, we can imagine as people who maybe don't have brains like that, what it might feel like and be like to have that level of compassion, to have that level of attention. So it is, it is neat to have that validation that proves that no, that there actually is a difference between, you know, a couple hundred hours of practice and 30,000 hours of practice. And, you know, it looks like this on a brain scan. And then of course, I think something that maybe for our culture is a little harder to understand is that there's a real difference of what it's like to be alive for that person. There's uh, Mm. a vast um, phenomenological difference and that that translates as as far far higher degrees of well-being than i think most of us could imagine yeah and so uh i think you know there there's as you said this way of looking at it by way of the brain and the kind of like what neurons are firing and all of those sort of quantitative measurements of the impact of deep practice is significant. And then there's also the testimonials throughout history of people who have actually gone super deep into this practice. And I think as you say in in, in your paper, and and I'm guilty of this, uh, less guilty now than I used to be, we have a tendency to discount those testimonials of real contemplative adepts. But, you know, across traditions, they're pretty unanimous in speaking on behalf of what you're saying, a profound transformation of the phenomenological experience, the subjective experience of what it's like to be alive. Um, it's pretty incredible. It is. And, and I think that, again, I'll just go back to the crisis of standards. Um, I think that's one of the things that we are risk, we risk losing if we lose deep practice because uh, you know, you could say a sentence like, uh, you know, I experienced deep bliss this morning. And I think a lot of, uh, a lot of modern teachers with uh, relatively little training pretty freely uh, use ancient terms, even ancient technical terms, um, and, and throw around things like about, you know, about bliss or about well-being or about this or that. Now, what someone's actual experience is can be radically different, even if they're using the exact same words. So reestablishing that there are indeed standards and metrics um, within the contemplative field, I think will will go a long way towards towards upholding uh, or, or, or promoting deeper possibilities. Because when you, have, um, when you have so much false currency in the marketplace, then all the money is going to lose its value, um, which is why it's important to have, you know, have that gold standard, have people who actually have, have deep training talking about what that experience of, of life is like from the perspective of 
of deep training. And then, you know, it, once you have that, yeah, it's important to have people of, of all levels of uh, participation and training and uh, people teaching from, you know, from relatively limited experience can, can still be like very important uh, teachers and, and offer a lot. And, you know, they should also know where they stand within uh, what they have accomplished and what they haven't accomplished. And, and the humility uh, and understanding uh, is sorely lacking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And what, what do you, I mean, given the, so uh, the kind of constraints and uh, let's say incentive structures embedded in the capitalist system, are, are, do you beyond, or, or how do you see uh, these monasteries of the future being able to kind of culturally shift the conversation such that there's, that all of the currencies you say doesn't get devalued because I very much see that happening right now. And it's, uh, it's a, it's a real concern for me. Yeah. I, I think that once, once, uh, deep practice becomes more recognized as a, uh, necessary component to be, um, really speaking about and teaching at the highest levels, that will that will go a long way towards towards reshaping the conversation. Part of the problem now is that the conversation gets hijacked by whoever has the the loudest voice, the loudest voice in terms of the um, the most people buying their book or listening to to the podcast or or whatever it is. And um, you know, as you can imagine, a lot of times the loudest voice is not the most qualified voice. Um, so I, I think, again, returning to uh, maybe a scientific example or bringing it to a scientific example would be nice. There is a big difference between um, writing about string theory and, you know, being uh, a physicist who's, who's developing the, the equations or discovering the equations that, that explain string theory. And our culture is is relatively skilled at knowing, you know, knowing one from the other. And uh, popular science writing is wonderful because it explains the findings from from the real researchers. But there's a big difference between a uh, someone who's really doing research and someone who's just kind of reading about it on the internet in terms of their understanding of the topic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and, you know, it, it's both the, who has the loudest microphone, who's buying their product and who has the most appealing, um, kind of invitations to the market, right? Like I know I'm not going to name the specific, uh, product or course, but there's a course out there that promises, I think, you know, they, they, and, you know, they use lots of scientific qualitative measurements to say that something like, you know, 92% of graduates experience what they define as enlightenment through an eight-week course. And it's like, how do we make sense of that in the context of the depth of training that you're pointing to? Um, Even in this case, where like science is actually being used to uh, help verify and validate these kinds of, I I see as extremely radical claims um, so how, how do we make sense of that, uh, given what you're, you've been writing about? Well, I mean, science can be used to, uh, validate all sorts of 
worldviews um, and and perspectives. Um, I think what's important is to just know that there's a uh, a huge range of experiences that people are having when they talk about, uh, let's say, enlightenment. So enlightenment's a word, and then it gets applied by many different people to many different types of experiences. And just, you know, having some some common sense around who you're listening to and who you're trusting uh, when they're using that word and and recognizing that different people are talking about different things when they use the same word. So for me, um, I look back at, at classical examples. I look at the people who've been, you know, teaching and training in this stuff for thousands of years and the traditions that have upheld standards over the years. And when I see like some of, let's say, the world's greatest Zen teachers, uh, people who as young, uh, as young people were prodigies and then went and trained with the greatest masters of the day, often for years, and then only after years of that rigorous training experienced an initial breakthrough. And then after that, spent maybe two more decades in deep training before being able to say that they really like, they really kind of had a handle on the uh, enlightenment thing. Um, to me, when I hear about that level of training, it, it just doesn't um, make sense that doing something for a couple minutes a day on your computer would uh, would yield the same result. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to play devil's advocate here just to kind of push this conversation because I think it's very important. Um, you know, I could hear that and say something like, yeah, well, you know, those were uh, training settings that were very isolated in Southeast Asia. Now we have we've been exposed to all of the different uh, kind of models and techniques and technologies. And so uh, we, we have innovated ourselves to a point where now we can leverage these technologies alongside, you know, let's just say like um, biofeedback or um, even say psychedelics or whatever it is, whatever tools and technology you want to do so that, you know, maybe it used to take two decades or a decade or uh, all this uncomfortable kind of uh, horrible training, but now we can do it in eight weeks and it takes two hours a day. I mean, I, I would love it if that was true. <laughs> I would love it. Um, I, I would say prove it. You know, I think there there's a, a, mm. a burden of proof when you're making a claim like that. If you're going to divert so uh, diverge so strongly from uh thousands of years of people who who are doing this training and are together creating a consensus understanding of what this training looks like and what this training entails. If you're going to make a very um, radical claim, then you should have some evidence behind that claim. And, and I think that in a way, the, uh, the neuroscience might be able to be helpful in this regard because, no, I don't think your brain is going to look anything like Hakuin who's a great Zen master, Hakuin's brain. Um, I highly doubt it. If, if again, if it did, um, wow. And not only your brain, like your experience, uh, what, what's your experience? Like, do you still just get annoyed with, 
your dad and your coworker and everything else. Um, you know, so, so, so the proof's in the pudding and, uh, um, and I, I think radical claims definitely, uh, should be supported by evidence. Yeah. Great. And, and I think the other, uh, piece that I picked up from reading your paper is that, you know, I think th these monasteries of the future, when, uh, synergized with contemporary neuroscientific findings about what happens to the brain when there is a lot of practice and perhaps, you know, moving forward, some of these spaces will be the places in which they find those brains to study, you know, that there will be this growing recognition of, oh, here are some of some metrics we can actually hold people to so that, you know, I think part of what we've been talking about here is the vagaries of language. You know, one person's enlightenment is another person's access concentration, it seems like, in today's spiritual marketplace. And so, like, uh, having actual measurable qualifications almost that perhaps this constellation of monasteries of the future can sort of start to build together as they chart out this sort of post-traditional territories, um, I think in and of itself, a great reason to, to, to believe that these are, uh, th these monasteries are extremely significant, whether or not you even think that we're kind of innovating away from the need for this sort of deep training. It's like, well, we, we want a kind of baseline that we can trust until it, lest we kind of just get completely uh, taken by a, a, something that's not actually true and not actually um, as deep as you can go. You know, we, we settle for something that's less. Absolutely. Um, I, I think that these sorts of places certainly could play a, a very strong role in, in developing those metrics. And I think the problem goes deeper. I think that, that there's not really uh, – there's got to be a will to and a desire to have accountability and have standards. There, there already are ways which we could be very clear about certain elements of contemplative training that that are kind of, uh, I would say, almost willfully disregarded right now. I mean, you look at look at how concentration is understood. I think you see some of the the clearest um, cases of that where you have just uh, huge bodies of, of classical text talking about very obvious phenomenological benchmarks and that you either meet or you don't meet. Like, for example, can you, can you pay attention to your breath without being distracted by, uh, by some thought for an hour without, without wavering? Can you do that? You know, I, I think most, modern teachers can't do that and and in classical text that's 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 only a very small step in in just in the attention realm alone um you know being able to do that is is like a, a small part of how deep one's attention ought to be before before you know going on to enlightenment so when people are making claims about enlightenment without even having a very basic ability to to control the mind very basic samadhi then those claims to me again seem seem dubious at best yeah and i i also want to point out at this point in the conversation that it's not like there's um total agreement amongst the traditions, right? Like there's actually 
a lot of really fascinating, uh, but also quite contentious uh, differences in perspective about like what is the highest quality of training, like what awakening looks like, you know, uh, what concentration is, what samadhi is. You know, um, I know that you studied with uh, Alan Wallace, and he has you know a very uh, uh, hardcore definition of shamatha versus a lot of other uh, folks out there who have less hardcore definitions. And, you know, that I think also just needs to be taken into consideration. It's not like eh, there's not just one source of truth to look at. And so it's more complex than that. We can't trust any single tradition. We can't trust science. We can't trust innovators. We have to create some kind of larger container in which we can start to really uh, do the hard work of sorting all of this out. Exactly. And that's why, that's why these things, you know, the, the vision I articulate, which is definitely not my vision, um, but one that I believe in is of a, uh, Soryu calls it a, a forest of monasteries. Alan calls it a, a network of, of, um, of, of, uh, contemplative observatories, essentially this, network of institutions that are each in their own way working to move um, the contemplative field forward and are collaborating and competing with one another to to develop these standards the same way the same way things move forward in science it's not just you know one lab having a report and then that's mm -hmm. the final word on it it's it's many different labs running many different experiments and through that trying to trying to develop consensus, um, consensus understanding over time. Mm. Nice. Yeah. And so I, I can imagine people listening to this show who are already kind of like, uh, in this worldview of, of seeing the need for the, or the role of our own development as human beings and how important that is uh, to meet the crises and the conditions of our time. So I, I, I wonder what it is in, from your perspective that is obstructing the emergence of many of such, of these such uh, monasteries of the future from just uh, emerging onto the world scene right now. Um, I think it's two things and they, uh, they work together. One is, um, one is very basic and it's just money. It's, it's how much money there is to support this sort of work to, you know, if you look at, um, the arts, which, uh, obviously compared to, to many things in our culture are not well supported by money, but even in the arts, there's so many grants, there's so many, um, so many ways young artists can, can sustain themselves so much support for that um so where's the support for the for the contemplatives and that comes down to you know where's the money where's the food where's the land and then on another level there's uh where's the vision how many young people or people of any age have a sense that deep contemplative practice is important, that uh, real shifts in the mind and heart are possible. So I, I think that that once more people wake up to just, um, just how big the transformation can be 
personally, they'll become a lot more interested in training. And, and we need, so we need that, that desire for people to train, uh, that cultural uh, and psychic support for it. And then also the uh, kind of nuts and bolts, nitty gritty, money, land, space. And uh, if, if those two things are met, then I think uh, a lot can happen very quickly. Nice. Yeah. And, and I also appreciate, and you, you mentioned this um, earlier in the show, but I want to kind of emphasize it here uh, is that it, it also, I think is behooves us to kind of create a uh, contemplative teaching culture, no matter at what level you're teaching at, like whether you're teaching as I have, you know, high schoolers or young adults or, um, you know, elders or whatever in which um, you acknowledge the further reaches of this practice and the limits of your own understanding. Right? And again, yeah. you, you gave this, this kind of analogy to, to like physicists. It's like, if you're teaching grade school physics, like great, like no, no, nothing wrong with teaching grade school physics, but like acknowledge the fact that there are people building particle accelerators. And that is, I think, um, I, I want to. The reason I'm emphasizing that is because I know that there are meditation teachers that listen to this show. I know there are people who are really into the practice, and um, I also know that this is something that I need to remind myself of. You know, because it's so easy when you're participating in the spiritual marketplace and in our world to kind of just be like, "Ah, oh, yeah, this is meditation. Like, I'm a meditator. I've been meditating for a while. Like, this is how it is." But like, no, it's really important. I think to kind of name this broader context and start to sort of just be real about the further reaches of this stuff and where it all fits together. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I, I've started doing, doing a bit of, a bit of teaching myself and working uh, largely with, with university students and, um, uh, you know, like, well, one of them was, was talking to me not so long ago and he started asking me these, these questions about, you know, about enlightenment and he was very excited about it. And I, I had to tell him about 10 times. I was like, I'm not the right person for that question. And no, I'm not just being coy or shy. Like, like you need to talk to someone more qualified than me. If you have a question about that, like, uh, that's, that's, that's beyond, that's beyond my area of, of, of understanding It's beyond my area of expertise. So, you know, go find, go find a professional and I could give him like a small list of people who might be able to help him with that. Um, so that sort of, 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 uh, humility isn't, uh, is, is really important and, and it doesn't make us weaker. It just makes the, the thing that we're actually sharing, uh, more important. Yeah, I think that's a great way to frame it is around this idea of humility. And it's, it's, it's a challenge because, you know, our, I think our system right now uh, incentivizes systematically uh, eradicating humility from the way you talk about, uh, you know, your spiritual practice and your, uh, what you have to offer, especially if you're a teacher and especially if you're a teacher who's trying to make a living out of what you're offering. Um, and so, you know, reckoning with that and, and being real and being in integrity, I think is uh, something that everybody in this industry really needs to spend a good deal of time uh, just 
contemplating and and feeling into and 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 having conversations, you know, like the one that we're having right now. Yeah. And and I would say like for me personally, um going to in my case the monastic academy like thoroughly humbled me. You know, like <laughs> it was the training itself that created this sense of oh, this is actually how deep the rabbit hole goes. I am just scratching the very surface. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's so important. And it's so important too, that's, that's part of the role of these these monasteries. I feel really grateful for, um, you know, it's like I would have thought that after even just the first couple months of, of training, I would have had all sorts of things uh, figured out and understood. And um, the fact that I never had the misconception that I had things figured out that I didn't have figured out is really entirely owed to the teachers I was working with and the other students I was around. And I was lucky to have teachers who had a very set a very high bar and to have people around me who had just done like uh, so much more work than I had. And, um, and, and I wish more people had that experience of just, you know, like, um, of, of, of having peers and, and mentors who are holding a deep, a deep enough level of training that it's, it's apparent what, what you yourself have and don't have the same way, you know, a young, um, ballerina, for example, or pianist would, would look around and, uh, it wouldn't be some great act of humility to recognize that they, you know, where they were in the order of things. It would just be like, oh yeah, I can perform at this level, but not this level. Um, and I think that in, in a way there's there's a, there's a similar level of of uh, clarity in the contemplative field that's possible, where you can just kind of look around and have a have a pretty honest uh, understanding of, of 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 what you figured out and understood and embodied and, and what you haven't. Mm-hmm. Cool, um, and so. Uh, at this point in the conversation, I, I, is there anything else, uh, Miles, on your mind that would be interesting or helpful to cover as we draw this conversation to a close? Um, I think I want to validate again the like uh, two things. One, the just the importance of like of little amounts of training. Two, you know, of that like just getting on, uh, you know getting on one of those apps and like doing your 10 minutes a day or, or 20 minutes a day. And I, I know living in, in New York now without the, the, the contemplative structures that I had before, how challenging that can be and, and how meaningful it can be. So, so I just want to reiterate that the importance of that and the, uh, the, the heroism of that and the value of that, and that there's, you know, something else that's, uh, that's possible and that's, that's important. And I guess one other thing I do, I do want to bring in too, we, we talked a tiny bit about the environmental component. Um, 
and this is a little more speculative, but uh, I think monasteries of, of the future could play a big role in, um, in reversing some of the inequality in the world. Um, mm. And if, if we did develop our culture to the point where there was more of an understanding and respect for deep contemplative training, uh, and also worked to democratize that training, then pursuing that training might be one one avenue of uh, of social mobility. And in in a lot of traditional uh, uh, Asian cultures, monasteries were avenues of of, of social mobility. Um, so that's that's you know a little more uh, idealistic, but but. I think a really important possibility to, to keep in mind. Beautiful miles. Well, thank you for coming on emerge and, and talking and kind of unfolding your paper for us. I think it's really a valuable contribution to, in my mind, a kind of meta modern analysis of what's needed on the world stage today, as far as creating a context in which more and more human beings can reach the furthest potentials of their own development. And so I think, uh, really appreciate the way that you have uh, explored this topic. And uh, yeah, I look forward to training with you at the Monastic Academy in the near future. Yeah, yeah. I'll, uh, I'll see you there and, and maybe elsewhere, Daniel.